Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. In today's show, we'll look at the distance between people who produce coal and those who consume it. I, I just I find it amazing that people don't even do a Google search to see, you know, what happens, what happens when you flip that switch? Where is it coming from? We'll examine why wolves are having so many conflicts with people around the town of Bondurant. I think there's a pack of 14 here, and then another pack of nine in this general area. So far, Wyoming lawmakers are reluctant to raise taxes to deal with a serious revenue shortfall. There's enough room in state government to make these cuts. I mean, don't kid yourself. We'll also hear about a transgender high schooler running for the school board, and find out how the Department of Health plans to weather steep budget cuts. Those stories all coming up on Open Spaces on Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. There's a polarized debate going on in this country about the future of fossil fuels, specifically coal. And beneath that debate is a disconnect between the people who produce coal and those who consume it. The debate and the divide were very much on display recently at a public meeting in Casper. Inside Energy's Lee Patterson reports. Environmentalists, lawmakers, coal miners, and advocates of all types gathered to have their say at the meeting hosted by the Department of the Interior. This is a politically motivated sham pandering to political allies of the secretary and the administration. That's Richard Reavy, an executive at a coal company called Cloud Peak Energy, coming out strong against a review of how coal is mined on federal land. The Department of the Interior is looking at royalty rates, environmental concerns, and coal communities themselves, and holding more meetings like this one across the country this summer. My name is Jeremy Murphy. I come here as a sixth-generation coal miner. Murphy moved to Wyoming in 2010 from Kentucky after getting laid off from a few coal mines there. As of the end of March, that region, central Appalachia, lost around 7,000 coal mining jobs in just one year. And so Murphy has a challenge for the environmental groups that want to keep coal in the ground. Take your cell phones, dig a hole with a shovel, put it in the ground. Put it back in the ground because coal made that. Murphy explains that he wants to make the point that fossil fuels are used to produce and power a lot of our stuff. He told me during lunch that this whole public speaking thing is new for him. So I get the sweat beads and get nervous and all that, but... I'm hoping that maybe I can make an impression. And get people thinking about who makes their electricity. I, I just, I find it amazing that people don't even do a Google search to see, you know, what happens, what happens when you flip that switch? Where is it coming from? But if you do a search and put that phrase, where does my electricity come from into the website Google Trends, like I'm doing right now, Instead of a map of searches by region, you get, quote, not enough search volume to show results. Jessica Smith, an anthropologist at the Colorado School of Mines, is writing about this disconnect between coal miners and everyone else. She got into this kind of work. Because of my experiences growing up in Gillette in northeastern Wyoming in a mining town with a mining family. 
Smith's basic idea is something she calls an energy exchange. For many coal miners, their side of this exchange, making energy for others, is a basic part of their identity. When Smith drove trucks at the coal mines during her summer breaks, miners would talk about their work like this. Well, this truck holds X many tons of coal. Um, that means it can light this many houses for this many hours. But on the other side of the exchange, when people living in those homes flip on their lights, there's little thought given to the miners on the other end. You'd still have to dig further to try to think about what is it like to live in Gillette and what's it like to work in a coal mine. So people have a very distant relationship with the actual sources of their energy. Smith thinks that for a long time, coal miners with steady, well-paying jobs could sort of just ignore this dynamic. But since 2011, the U.S. has lost over 30,000 of those jobs. That, plus environmental regulations like the Clean Power Plan and high-profile, effective anti-coal campaigns, Smith says it can just seem like a lot. When people feel like they're under attack, um, unfairly or, or fairly, right, there's this circling of the wagons. Then things end up polarized. We're uh, a keep-it-in-the-ground group. I mean, that, that is our M.O. I met Jeremy Nichols at that hearing in Casper. He's with an environmental group called Wild Earth Guardians, and they are very much part of the polarized debate. But the group has just unveiled a new billboard campaign with a bit of a nod to this divide. The theme? Just transition, which, you know, has two, two meanings for us. A transition away from coal and a fair transition for coal miners into new jobs. Miners have done amazing uh, work for our country for years. They've kept the lights on, you know, to borrow a page from the coal industry playbook. They have. And so I think it's the least we can do to help them. But that help? Coal miner Jeremy Murphy is skeptical that job retraining would even work. And to be honest with you, I don't want to. I love what I do. I, I just want to work. I want to be a coal miner. That's it. It's a debate still playing out here at meetings like this and on the national stage, where Hillary Clinton has pledged $30 billion to help coal communities transition. And Donald Trump has promised to put coal miners back to work. For Inside Energy, I'm Lee Patterson. Wyoming's revenue picture is dire. Thanks to declining energy and sales tax revenue, Governor Meade has already started cutting nearly $300 million from the two-year budget that was approved by the legislature in March. This is on top of projected shortfalls in revenue to pay for education. Because of the sudden lack of income, the legislature's Joint Revenue Committee is starting to look to see if there are a few tax increases that they can support. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck reports that so far, the answer is no. A week ago, Governor Matt Mead told the University of Wyoming that it would have to cut $35 million from its upcoming budget. The reason is state revenues are down $100 million from where they thought they would be. Mead will be demanding similar cuts from across state government. But despite all the budget cutting, Mead is not that excited about raising taxes to address the shortfall. He recalls a conversation he had with legislators heading into the legislative session. As you have the largest rainy day fund relative to your 
to your budget in the country and the second largest or third largest overall in terms of actual dollars. And you're also going to ask for more taxes. I said, I just, I just don't see that's doable for uh, the taxpayers. And frankly, as a taxpayer, I, wouldn't, I don't get that either. Mead says lawmakers need to spend their $1.5 billion rainy day fund first, and then the state can entertain taxes. We need to have, address a plan that is, makes sense in terms of the use of the rainy day fund. We can't just keep building that up and then say we've got a, a, a budget crisis and we're going to tax you. <laughs> I just don't think the citizens would accept that. I think what we're facing right now is a fundamental flaw in our system. That's Buck McVeigh of the Wyoming Taxpayers Association speaking during a recent meeting of the legislature's revenue committee. The committee is considering a variety of possible tax increases to deal with shortfalls in education and all of state government. McVeigh says Wyoming's in this position because it does not have a diverse economy. We've become so dependent over the years on, on, on our mineral base and the implications of this downturn are that it's not going to end anytime soon. So I think these, these folks are faced with the real challenge here of uh, what are some viable revenue options. McVeigh says the energy industry pays the bulk of taxes, and it is time that citizens pay for the services that they use. He adds that individuals in Wyoming have among the lowest tax burdens in the country. But if the majority of the committee members have their way, nobody will pay more taxes. Education is facing a serious shortfall since a lot of the money that pays for education comes from coal, and so lawmakers spent an entire day focused on that topic. But other than a possible increase in the wind tax, they didn't do much. And on the second day, despite some moderate concern for funding local governments, committee members approved no bills. Senator Kale Case of Lander seems to sum up the view of most on the committee when he says that the state overspent during good financial times. I'm really focused on trying to figure out how we can bring budget over the next four or five years way, 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 way down. I mean severely down. I think we've been living beyond our means because it hasn't been sustainable. So that's really my focus. House Minority Leader Mary Throne of Cheyenne says the state actually does have revenue it could use without raising taxes. But they would need a legislative session to change the way they use some of the earnings from the Permanent Mineral Trust Fund. Throne's proposal would be to put investment earnings into the state's general fund. If we set that up like it was originally intended to run like an endowment and guaranteed an income from that, you know, we could have ballpark $300 million more of biennium going into the general fund. Which, by the way, is the same number the governor is trying to cut. Throne says lawmakers took some of that money to pay for some construction projects that she contends are not needed right now. And she adds there's other sources of state income that could also be used. And, of course, there's the legislative savings account. Speaker of the House Kermit Brown says they'll consider some of those things if the bust lasts. But he says the state needs to be conservative with its spending first. There's enough room in state government to make these cuts. I mean, don't kid yourself. Uh, there's a lot of efficiencies that we can realize in state government. We've run pretty fat. We've run pretty loose here for a long time. And there are a lot of places in state government where we can make cuts without, 
without affecting essential services, the things that are really important to people will still be there. And the discussion continues. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. When we come back, we'll talk to the director of the Wyoming Department of Health about how he plans to deal with deep budget cuts. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Due to a massive drop in projected revenues, the governor is trying to cut spending for the next two-year budget cycle by 8%. He says he's trying to cut spending levels back to where they were 10 years ago. The University of Wyoming has already started working on a cut of nearly $40 million, and the largest cut will likely come from the Wyoming Department of Health. Tom Forslund is the director of the department, and I sat down with him in Cheyenne to discuss what that kind of cut means. One of the challenges I know with the Department of Health is you get so much federal money that's tied in with state money, a, a lot of matches and, and beyond matches, certainly. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that and, and how that leads to some challenges? Well, in the Department of Health, uh, we receive significant federal funding uh, for numerous health programs, and we administer approximately 70 programs uh, within the the, uh, Department of Health, and uh, many of those, in fact, most of them have a federal funding component attached to it. And so as soon as you cut $1 of state general funds, then you can lose a corresponding amount of, of federal funds. So as an example, in the Medicaid program, the traditional uh, uh, costs we have there, uh, you know, the traditional match is uh, uh, 50-50, or basically $1 in state spending our general fund uh, generates an additional $1 in federal funds. So correspondingly, if we cut $1 in, in state funds, we lose a dollar in federal funds. So for everything we take out of the Medicaid program in the traditional um, areas, then we, we have to double that in effect uh, because we lose the, 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 the state and federal funding. So when you look at across the whole agency, uh, it becomes very complex, and what we deal with is varying match rates. In some aspects, uh, or some federal programs will be 50-50, some will be 90-10. And, and so if we cut a dollar out of some programs, and again, you lose $9 in federal funds, it's, uh, it, it gets much larger and, uh, and more impactful. Tom Forslund visiting with us. He's the director of the Department of Health. When when you look at your agency, the, the two things that come to mind for me that probably are the biggest drivers, you mentioned one just a second ago, was Medicaid. And, and I'm always thinking about things such as developmental disabilities. Is that right, or are there other areas that are, that are also uh, maybe driving some of the, the spending? Well, let me talk a little bit about the Department of Health's budget. Uh, the Department of Health's budget... Uh, approximately 10% of our budget goes to personnel costs, people costs. The other approximately 90% go is distributed to 
um, providers throughout the state of Wyoming. And those are essentially small businesses located in, in all counties across the state. So when I start to uh, talk about uh, you know, where cuts will occur, they're going to occur in the communities across the state and, frankly, in small businesses uh, because who we fund are uh, doctors, uh, d um, developmental disability uh, um, services providers, um, preschools, developmental preschools, uh, the list just goes on, and and that certainly is is, is a challenge. One of the things, as you're talking about, is and we've talked about this before, is when you sometimes reduce those payments, you might have some providers that just say, "The heck with it! Uh, I'm I'm not going to mess around with this population anymore." I mean, is that a legitimate concern? They all have varying degrees of uh, financial stability. And the larger percentage of their budget that's paid for with state funds, the more vulnerable they are to, to reductions of, of, of state funds. So as an example, a, a hospital in, in a community uh, is, it has a number of uh, pay sources. Medicaid, which we administer, would be one of them. Medicare would be uh, another source. Private insurance would be another source, so on and so forth. And then there are others like uh, developmental disability uh, providers who are essentially, in many cases, or most cases, 100% funded by, by Medicaid. And so the when we look at this, we have to look at how vulnerable uh, these these businesses are as a percentage of uh, their revenues coming from the department and try to factor that in. But at the end of the day, uh, we have to take money out of the system, and those who are in weaker financial positions are potentially could uh, uh, leave the, the marketplace. You've got some, you were talking about developmental uh, disabilities, but there's developmental preschools. You've funded those, and is, is there going to be probably situations, and, and I'm just using them as an example, but where you've gone agencies like that that you may have to say, we're going to have to leave this up to some local a United Way or somebody to maybe pick up some of this funding? Well, at the end of the day, we, we have to make some very difficult decisions. And, and we will be reducing funding for many, many providers throughout the state of Wyoming. Then those providers uh, who, are, who are located throughout the state will have to look at their own financial positions and, and their own communities and say, can we make up any of those funds uh, locally? Or, or, or not, and so it's hard to generalize to say that uh, there will be, you know, the community will be able to step up uh, and, and supplement the funding. I think in some cases that will happen, in others it won't. It just, it, it depends probably on the provider and, and their relationship with their respective community. Would Medicaid expansion prevent a lot of these cuts? The situation with uh, Medicaid expansion is that we right now cannot provide uh, care or basically uh, um, uh, health insurance uh, for those people, those adults who've been laid off now as a result of, uh, of uh, businesses shutting down, private businesses shutting down across the state. We don't have ability to uh, provide uh, health 
uh, insurance coverage for them. I've been asked more than once, you know, can you do anything for the miners who have lost their jobs in uh, in Gillette area or other parts of the state? And the, my answer is no, I, I don't have the ability because uh, we uh, Medicaid uh, is, is restricted to certain groups of people and until the, the state elects to expand, uh, we, um, we can't do that. Um, and in terms of uh, uh, cost savings as a result of Medicaid expansion, one of my uh, abilities to uh, move money around my agency uh, to pay for the federal match that, or the state match, uh, that's going to be eliminated uh, or uh, pretty much through all these budget cuts because the programs that I was going to move money from might very well be reduced significantly just as a result of budget reductions and getting nothing in return uh, for that. If you Tom Forslin is the director of the Wyoming Department of Health. Always nice chatting with you. Thank you. Always visit, nice and visiting with you too, Bob. Thank you. Coming up, we'll take a horseback ride into wolf country and hear about a transgender high schooler running for school board. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. When a pack of wolves in Bondurant in northwestern Wyoming started killing cattle, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service did what they promised when they introduced the species 20 years ago. They responded by killing off the wolf pack. The federal agency is in charge of wolf management while their endangered species status is debated in court. Then, in another instance in the same area, a pack killed 19 elk and left them uneaten. Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards took a horseback ride to find out what's going on with wolves there. Everywhere you look on the McNeil elk feed ground west of Bondurant, you see the bones and hides of dead elk. Rancher Steve Robertson says many are left behind from wolf kills. He tells of seeing elk chased by wolves here just this last winter. The steam's boiling off of them, their tongues are hanging out, and then about two weeks later, then all of those elk were killed on the feed ground. And, and the elk, you know, they can't go anyplace. They, they're snowed in, they're trapped. Such a high surplus killing, as they're called, has never been seen before on Wyoming's 22 elk feed grounds. Today, we're taking a ride to get a view of his grazing allotment that borders the feed ground. In just a couple weeks, he'll be releasing thousands of head of cattle into this country. Riding up the ridge, we see lots of wolf tracks. We had a hard rain two days ago, three days ago. These tracks are probably made in that rainstorm. He says he's never had a problem with wolves, but now with so many large packs moving in, his job has gotten harder. Put our cattle where they need to be and go back the next day and the wolves have chased them out of there. So that's, you know, a daily effort to try to comply with our permit. Plus... If you're moving your cattle all the time, they don't grow. 
Robertson says he'd like to see the wolves taken off the endangered species list again, like they were from 2012 to 2014. He says in those days there weren't so many conflicts because hunting kept numbers down, and the Wyoming Game and Fish Department had more people managing them. One was large carnivore biologist Ken Mills. He says what's happening in Bondurant is rare. He shows me a moose jaw from a wolf kill with tooth decay so bad it ate a hole through the bone. Here's another example of what, you know, that's way beyond a root canal. Yeah. <laughs> so you can imagine the pain that that one's dealing with. Pain that ended when a wolf took the moose down. Mill says wolves keep elk herds healthy by killing the diseased. He says it's unknown whether the 19 elk killed were sick, but hoofrot has killed hundreds of elk on feed grounds recently. But he says either way, there's still a lot of wolves in the area. The goal of the game and fish is to manage wolf populations at a level that's low enough to sustain elk populations. And we know what that level generally is, six to seven wolves per thousand elk. At Bondurant, it's 25 wolves for 1,500 elk. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Wolf Coordinator Mike Jimenez says it's not just Bondurant with lots of wolves. It's the highest population in Wyoming in the history of the program. They were over 380 wolves, over 48 packs in Wyoming. Even though originally the state only agreed to manage 100 wolves in 10 packs. Jimenez says the wolves have run out of good mountain habitat and are moving down into ranching country like Bondurant. He says that puts a heavy burden on ranchers. They try to avoid conflicts. They have herders, they have riders, they have calving and fenced areas, they use guard dogs. But when the Dell Creek wolves killed over 10 cattle, Jimenez says the Fish and Wildlife Service was forced to use aerial gunning, shooting them from a plane until they stopped preying on cattle. We removed nine of the 16 animals. They do have a den, they do have pups, and there's now probably around six or seven wolves. They've moved away from the livestock, and that's worked really well. Wyoming Game and Fish Chief Game Warden Brian Nesvik says when the state managed wolves, this kind of thing rarely happened. But during that period of time when we had authority, there were less wolves that were shot out of helicopters or airplanes. Nesvik says wolves also didn't bother cattle as much around Bondurant. He says the public outcry over the killing of the Dell Creek wolves shows how divided people still are over wolves. I honestly believe the best way to get folks to embrace wolf populations being on the landscape is through state management. Federal management does not perpetuate a feeling of ownership in this species. It just doesn't. And state management does seem to be working in Montana and Idaho, where wolves were delisted by Congress in 2011. Populations in those states are even higher than Wyoming's, even with trophy hunting. Tim Presso is an attorney with Earth Justice, an environmental group that fought to get Wyoming's wolves relisted. He says the difference between Wyoming and those other states is Wyoming's management plan. Which has this widespread predator zone with unlimited killing. Presso says Wyoming only agreed to protect wolves with limited hunting in the northwest corner of the state. In the other 85 percent of the state, they were classified as predators, like coyotes, and could be killed on sight. I mean, the, the United States didn't spend millions of dollars to recover wolves just so that they could all be shot again. The debate over Wyoming's approach to managing wolves continues to be debated in courts. Because of that, there doesn't appear to be a clear path to delisting wolves anytime soon. In the meantime, the wolf populations in Wyoming continue to move south. Riding back along the creek, rancher Steve Robertson brings his horse up short and points. 
Three gray-white wolves flash in the red willows and then dart up a steep hill. They stop once to look back, and then they're gone. We sit on our horses, watching a long time. Even though it means a greater threat to his cattle, Robertson says it's still always fun to spot wolves. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. Albany County School District was on its way to becoming the first in Wyoming to pass a policy protecting transgender students. Now amid national debate, school officials are dragging their feet. As Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank reports, one transgender high schooler who helped draft that policy is now running for a seat on the school board to try to salvage it. At a recent school board meeting in Laramie, high school senior Rihanna Kelver showed up with a call to action. I am asking that the board take initiative now to protect these students. As soon as we lose a student by the 50% rate suicide that transgender youth face, the blood will be on our hands. 18-year-old Calver is one of a few transgender kids in Laramie. She's been working with a board on a policy for months, and she's been a living, breathing rebuttal to those who dismissed that policy as a solution in search of a problem. A couple of people opened with, who is this policy even helping? So it was kind of nice to be able to stand up and say, hey, um, I'm right here. Back in January, the school board came up with two drafts of their plan. They both do things like require teachers to use students' preferred names and pronouns, but there's one major difference. One lets transgender students use the bathrooms that match their gender identity. The other makes them use bathrooms that match their biological sex. But after a legal dust-up in North Carolina, the school board decided it wasn't the right time to move forward with either. They were worried about litigation on either side. Kelver's petitioning the board to pass the one that would guarantee she could use the girls' restroom and says it can't wait. That's why she's decided to run for a seat on the board herself. For two years, Kelver was relegated to a single-stall bathroom in her school's special ed wing. Most of my classes were actually on the other wing, and so it was constantly having to travel there, you know, wasting the class time I needed. And eventually I just kind of stopped using it more and more, which brought up some serious health issues. Like repeated bladder infections. Last month, after some negotiations, she started using girls' bathrooms. Every Tuesday, Calvary eats lunch with her high school's Sally Club. That stands for Safe Area for Laramie LGBT Youth. She's club president and says safety is a concern in this community. I do wish I could just go out to like a concert or a party and not worry about my outward image and whether or not the person next to me, you know, is going to just outright beat me to death because I look too masculine. Many club members support Kelber's school board candidacy, like sophomore Annika Pelkey. I'm so proud of her. Like, she's already been so active in it. And she's just, like, the most hardworking person I know, basically. And I think that she would be amazing for it. The club's faculty sponsor, William Plum, says he's really seen the need for a policy at Laramie High School. We've had 
students who chose not to transition because there was nothing in place or they felt that there was no support. Last week, the federal government issued guidance to schools outlining civil rights protections for transgender students. State leaders condemned the directives as overreach. Superintendent Jillian Baylow says her chief responsibility is making sure all Wyoming children can learn safely. Quite frankly, federal guidance doesn't necessarily help that. Those decisions rest best with our local schools. But Albany County 1 Superintendent Jubilee says the guidance is helpful. To him, it means that Laramie no longer needs either of the proposed policies they've been talking about. We don't need anything going forward. We needed the guidance. We now have the guidance. So if we'd had this guidance a year ago, the policy conversation wouldn't have come up. Yenny says a district policy would be overkill because the feds have made clear that gender identity should be protected under existing non-discrimination laws known as Title IX. Which says you know, that we cannot discriminate because of race, creed, age, religion, sex, national origin. Okay, we have no policies on any of those, yet we know how to deal with those. Yenny says until a court weighs in differently, he'll address the needs of transgender students on a case-by-case basis using that federal guidance. But transgender high schooler Rihanna Calver says that's not good enough. It would be a case-by-case for everything. You have to file a Title IX complaint, you have to have a hearing and all of that. We could enact a policy that solves it then and there. This is against school policy and this has to stop. Kelver says a local policy about restrooms and pronouns could signal to the whole community that transgender students deserve respect. She hopes to continue that conversation from a seat on the school board. The election is in November. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Aaron Schrank. These reports are a part of American Graduate, Let's Make It Happen, a public media initiative to address the dropout crisis, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The poorest among us pay more than they can afford for their power bills. Economists call it an affordability gap. In 2015, low-income Wyoming residents as a whole charged almost $37 million above what is considered sustainable. That's according to a long-term study looking at local power bills and income data. That means energy bills force hard decisions in other areas. Inside Energy's Dan Boyce says the most desperate time can be the spring when power bills from the winter start piling up. Take someone like Leanne Shelberg. A broken back and a recurring battle with skin cancer ended her career as an interior designer. She's unable to work. When I was first trying to set up an interview with her, she was in trouble. This is going to be fun. We're going to literally be sitting in the dark. She had some stacked up power bills from the previous two months owing close to $500. It's never that high. Her budget is fixed and razor thin. You can look around her modular home and see all the little things she and her daughter do to save electricity. She keeps most of her lights off and her appliances unplugged. And I keep the microwave on because that's my clock. It wasn't enough. She used more power than she planned for and she couldn't pay the bill. Roger Colton is an economist in Massachusetts. He's been studying situations like Leanne's for decades. Probably 30-some years now. He brings up the figure 6 
8%. It's often held up as a baseline for the sustainable amount of income to be spending on utilities. Any spending over that he calls the affordability gap. He projects that gap nationwide was $40 billion last year alone. That dollar amount, basically, that low-income households cannot afford to pay. Cannot afford to pay but still need to find a way to do so. Within a radius of a quarter mile here, there are hundreds of low-income households. I'm looking out Skip Arnold's second-floor office window in Denver. He's the executive director at nonprofit Energy Outreach Colorado. Seniors, working families, disabled people. Organizations like his spend millions at the state level to help the poor pay energy bills. Utilities also often have their own programs for assistance, And then the federal government gives by far the most. In 2015, the Fed spent close to $3.5 billion nationwide, most of that going to home heating costs. But again, if the annual affordability gap is closer to $40 billion... It would be impractical or impossible to raise enough money. The nonpartisan Congressional Research Service predicts only about a fifth of the people who qualify for the federal assistance receive it. So Arnold says those at the bottom continue to spend between 25 or 30 percent of their income or more just to pay utilities. The chunk of 30 percent of their total income leaves precious little for anything else. Sacrifices come from elsewhere. They skip meals. Maybe skip going to the doctor or stop taking medications. I had to pick two bills that I wasn't going to pay that month. Leanne Shelberg was desperate, still looking at that nearly $500 bill. Energy Outreach Colorado only provides assistance once a year, and she went to them last summer. In mid-March, she went to her utilities office, her service about to be shut off. She sat down with an employee. Her name is Kimberly. She was an amazing woman. Shelberg says Kimberly gave her $100 out of her own pocket to reopen her account. And I sat there and cried because she knew I didn't have all the money. The utility has switched her to a new program where she prepays for electricity as she tries to slowly take care of those old bills. It's working for now, but it's a hard reality she's faced with every day. Utility bills aren't the ones you skip. You you can't live without them. That is, if you care about living with a roof over your head. A study from the University of Colorado finds for households with children in the state Not being able to pay utility bills is the second leading cause of homelessness, right behind domestic violence. For Inside Energy, I'm Dan Boyce. To see a map of where the affordability gap is highest, you can visit the Inside Energy website. Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues. To wrap up, we'll find out about Wyoming's upcoming fire season and visit the Women in STEM conference. This is Open Spaces.
Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. This week, federal officials said that a dry spring have them concerned that there could be a serious summer fire season in the western United States. Of course, few of us in Wyoming understand what a dry spring looks like. Bill Crapser is Wyoming State Forester. I caught up with him in his office in Cheyenne. So we're hearing in the West, there's supposed to be a lot of concern for fire, but boy, we've had so much moisture here. Are we as concerned? Really, we're not, Bob. The Where we're looking at is probably of the low end of a normal fire season is what we're predicting right now. Of course, that can change with the weather patterns over June, July, and August. As we all know, with the wind in Wyoming, it only takes a couple weeks of hot, dry weather to dry things out. But right now, the, the big areas of concern uh, for this season are the southwest and then up through California and as the summer progresses into Nevada, southern Idaho. That's where the predictive services are saying fire season uh, is going to be bad. Um, the interesting thing is right now the predictions are Hawaii is going to have a above average fire season all summer. They've been in a drought over there and they have, they have been picking up quite a few wildfires. But for ours right now, we're looking at normal to a little bit lighter than normal fire season. Um, our resources are in pretty good shape uh, from, from our state hell attack to our inmate crews. BLM and the Forest Service have good resources available. And as always, the counties of the volunteer fire departments have strong resources. Um, I think we're looking at somewhere around 1,500 volunteers being red carded this year. So we have pretty good cadre across the state to respond to fires that we do have. I would think with the state's financial situation, it would be a good year not to have a lot of fires. Uh, that's correct. I mean, every year is a good year not to have a lot of fires. But, uh, you know, firefighting has, is very expensive, and uh, we're, uh, we're hoping for a, for a light season. Is there anywhere in the state, I, I'm so focused, as probably you are too, on southeast Wyoming, we've had so much, it seems like we're having a snowstorm every other week still, but are there parts of the state where it's been a little drier that there are areas that are you're concerned about? The, um, the area up the Bighorns, east through Campbell County, Crook and Weston County, have actually been pretty dry all winter. Um, they have been picking up substantial moisture the last couple weeks, so they're in better shape than they were, but they were they were uh, pretty areas of concern for us um, early on. The way the the predictive services look, it kind of depends where the jet stream flows for the summer. But the northern half of the state will probably see more fire activity than the southern half of the state this year. Is at least what our what we're predicting right now. The other thing you've told me in the past is when you do have wet winters, that can fool you a little bit because if things really dry out you're going to have a lot of growing and that can be a cause for concern that's that's true and and that's why i say the the weather in june july and august really is the telling thing um if you have a wet spring you get a lot of fuels especially fine fuels grass cheat grass in particular get uh, heavy growth and then if it dries out you have a lot of issues uh, if you look in october of last year the station fire up by um, Casper is a good example of that. We had a, lot, a wet spring, had a lot of grass grow, didn't have much fire activity all uh, summer, but we had a fairly warm, dry fall, and that uh, precipitated having that type of fire activity. But so far, from what you see, forecasts and all that, you, you shouldn't have a lot of problem this summer? I really don't think so. I, I, I hate to make that prediction because yeah, usually I'm wrong if I make that kind of a prediction. But um, 
with everything the weather folks are telling us right now, we should have fairly moist weather patterns throughout the summer. Bill Crapser is the Wyoming State Forester. We spoke with him in Cheyenne. More than 500 middle and high school girls descended on the University of Wyoming campus this week to learn more about STEM careers. STEM stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. The young women attended workshops throughout the day where they learned more about different fields. Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard brings us this audio postcard about the day's events. At the Women in STEM conference, middle and high school girls get to pick three workshops to attend in fields like animal husbandry, chemistry, and robotics. There are 25 options to choose from. Holly Ramsier is a senior in chemical engineering at UW and is helping out today. She says the conference is all about getting your feet wet and seeing what you like. It's really nice to have so many other girls there with you, so it's not just like you feel like a minority at all. And I think junior high is a really good age to hit them, to see, you know, you really can do it and you don't have to, you know, go into something that's not science just simply because you are a girl. On the way to the second workshop, two girls bob down the sidewalk, arm in arm. Jenna Kaufman, I'm in eighth grade and I go to Lingo Fort Laramie. Uh, Bailey Dagan, uh, I'm in seventh grade and I go to Tarkington Middle School. Jenna's first workshop of the day was in microscopy. We just got to look at a cool thing through the microscope. Uh, I went to the Teton Raptor Center place and we got to learn about like how they care for their birds there. In that workshop, senior avian educator Becky Collier shows how the Teton Raptor Center rehabilitates and trains its birds. And she's got her baby colors, which are kind of speckly, and that's what helps her camouflage into her nest. What do you see on her leg? She's got a little band on her leg. It hasn't During the lunch hour, there are booths around the union representing different organizations so that professionals can demonstrate some of what they do. The National Weather Service has a table set up with whirring machines. My name is Kate Katsakis. I'm a meteorologist at the National Weather Service in Cheyenne. So right here, what we have is our Van de Graaff. Basically, this is to simulate a lightning bolt. But what it does, you have this belt that rotates inside of it and this ball on the top, which generates a charge. So when you touch it or you touch it with our uh, wand, you get an electrical discharge. So that way it simulates the same type of reaction you get with the lightning in the atmosphere. Sparks are flying. Can I shock you? Oh my yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's all. My hand is <laughs> After lunch, it's on to the last workshop. In one, members of the U.S. Geological Survey are teaching about groundwater and impermeable layers with ice cream floats. 
Sprite and ice represent clean groundwater. Orange soda is pollution. And the ice cream is supposed to keep the two apart, an impermeable layer. Erin Joannis is a middle schooler from Cheyenne. After finishing her ice cream float, she admits she wasn't sold on science at the beginning of the day. I wasn't really super interested in science, so I thought it was going to be kind of like something boring when I came, like science class where you sit and read out like textbooks. But no, I turned a penny into gold, and I got to go and look at planets, and it was pretty fun. Women are still underrepresented in STEM fields nationwide especially in computer science, engineering, and physics, where they make up less than 20% of undergraduates earning degrees. Sarah Davis is one of the USGS presenters leading the ice cream float workshop. She says even though she works for the Geological Survey now, she wasn't that interested in science at their age either. It would have been very cool to come to something like this just to see what different aspects of science there are because it's such a broad category, I guess, is not the right word, but yeah, there's so many different things to see. Like, I don't know, it's really cool that they can bring so much together and they can take so much home from it. And the hope is, one day they'll be back, studying and working in STEM. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Caroline Ballard. listening to Open Spaces. If you missed any part of the program or want to hear an individual segment again, it's all available on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. On that site, you can listen to old shows, pitch us stories for future programs, and link to our podcast. It's also available on iTunes. We also invite you to like our Wyoming Public Radio News Facebook page, and all of our reporters are on Twitter. You can find me under the handle ButterBob. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.